Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Mafedon. Thanks for tuning in. Boston's indigenous peoples includes members of the Massachusetts, Wampanoag, and Nipmuc tribes, and their effort to end the celebration of Columbus Day has been ongoing for decades. Leading into Monday's Indigenous Peoples Day, Roxbury students learned about the real people behind the day. And a long time ago, um Mayor Michelle Wu spent her morning reading to the second graders of Mendel Elementary last Friday to honor Indigenous Peoples Day. Roxbury students listened Spellbound to Berry Song by Michaela Goad, which illustrates the culture and way of life of Indigenous people, the first inhabitants of this country. I think it's super important for children to read books like these because it reminds them that first that Native people are here, Indigenous peoples are here, um, because more often than not, you know, Native people have been erased from history, and especially in this state where our history is very, um, very old and very deep and very harmful. Um, I think it's super important to have these kind of conversations, especially with our young ones who are, um, who are very lucky to be part of a generation that gets to talk about Native history a little more than I did or maybe you did. This year, Boston City Council adopted a resolution to recognize the second Monday of October as Indigenous Peoples Day. Students of the past who regarded the holiday as a day off from school learned about the day in connection to Christopher Columbus. However, today's educators are focused on centering Indigenous people and their students' conversations about the holiday, and they're trusting young people's ability to grapple with America's past and be better for it. To learn about uh, our fellow Indigenous brothers and sisters is a really um, important thing for those young people to know and for all children to really understand the true scope of history and to be able to grow up and, and uh, reconcile complex uh, identities and histories and grow into stronger um, civic civic participants and, and you know hopefully take, take pride and take part in all facets of our city. We want students to be able to understand the ugly parts of our history, the great parts of our history, so that things that are happening today make more sense, because if we don't look at our history, even the ugly parts of it, how will we be able to change our future and give them the future they deserve? Knowledge is power and reading builds empathy. With more conversations around the history and contributions of Indigenous people, our students come closer to showing up as allies and leading with their humanity. It is incredibly important to learn about our past because these events shape um, the present and we want to make sure that we take lessons from the past so we can avoid making mistakes in the future. Over the weekend, the sounds of advocacy run through Davis Square and let the world know that Boston will not back down in the face of injustice. The Hawk Parade was back this year in Davis Square to bring together hundreds of musicians and thousands of activists in the fight for equality and justice. We're out here today with 30 activist street bands from around the country here gathered to support 30 local advocacy groups doing really important work, anti-racist work, anti-gentrification, anti-war work, which we especially need right now. And what we do is we bring the spectacle, we bring the music that attracts the cameras and the microphones, like the one you're holding right now, which these groups do not normally have access to in their day-to-day -day operations. And that is the purpose of, of Honk.
I think uh, Honk is a wonderful demonstration of people from various organizations and various uh, movement focuses that come together, you know, to creatively express the need for holistic justice. Um, I think that everyone has their own focus, but they're all, you know, connected through this greater idea of what justice means and what it means like, what it would mean like to live in a world um, that is more just. Um, that has fair housing, that advocates for the climate and uh, other forms of, you know, advocacy and all the other claims that people are, are, are here marching for. The parade highlights major social issues through banners, chants and marching band music. Honk was created to bring together music and activism. Uh, the Today's Parade is fun, it's musical, but it also points out some of the issues that we're trying to solve in our society. Um, you know, climate change, homelessness, social injustices, racial injustices. Uh, so it's a parade for everyone, but it's it's also, and it's fun, but it's also to try to point out some of these, these social issues. The combination of lively music and passionate activists created an event that connected participants and viewers with the message of the day. If we stand together, we can bring justice to these issues. I think we're in a period where the country is deeply divided and there are many pressing social issues that have to be dealt with. Racism, housing problems, the COVID response, um, all of these things demand action and I think people are taking to the streets because of that um, to protest these issues and to try to return the country to some sense of balance and equity. Uh, and inclusion of everybody. A fair and just society for all its people is something we must keep striving for. And having these uplifting marching bands parading through our streets, heralding this message, is not a bad way to go about it. Fenway Health brought together lovers of painting and art to connect and relax during stressful times in honor of writer and poet Audre Lorde and Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Audre Lorde said, caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. The words of the feminist poet rung true at Fenway Health on Saturday, where the Audre Lorde paint party offered relaxation to those supporting loved ones through cancer treatment or fighting the disease themselves. Helping others find peace and power through creativity is the medicine Kia and Al Watkins, the Mary team behind At Peace Arts, have been prescribing for 10 years through their painting parties with music. Drawing, painting, music, it's a beautiful way to bring people together, but it's also a beautiful way just to heal. If you're feeling a certain way about, I may not be able to do it or anything like that, you feel more comfortable someone walking you through and you can breathe and laugh together and be in good space together and not feel like, ah, for two hours you get to forget about whatever you're going through and just create together with people that understand. The arts have the ability to restore peace to someone facing one of the most difficult times in her life. And doing it with others only magnifies the effect. The intention of today's event is for folks who are supporting their loved ones that are going through cancer treatment right now. Uh, they, are, they need support also. And so we are here to support them and we're all here to dance. We're here to paint. We're here to eat and have a good time, share great energy. And this is a place that we're all coming to share and be vulnerable together and leave feeling better than we arrived. 
Attendees embraced positivity as they mixed colors and brought their paintings to life. With every stroke of the brush, they defied cancer, paying homage to the spirit of Audre Lorde, who transformed pain to art by describing her own diagnosis, treatment, and recovery from breast cancer in her book, The Cancer Journals. I think it's a very human thing to enjoy um, art and beauty and celebrate life, and I think having art and music together is a very soothing experience because we appreciate um, beautiful things around us and we want to create and express ourselves and putting this all together is very soothing for people who have gone through very difficult times in their life. We see this in every field of, of trauma and depression where art is a wonderful medium for them to uh, kind of relieve all that stress and feel better about themselves and kind of create beauty if they don't see it in their lives. Art is one of the most powerful tools we have, and when it's shared with an understanding community, there's healing and joy. In Roxbury, Mayor Michelle Wu joined city workers to celebrate the newest department that offers resources to returning citizens in need of support. On Friday, the ribbon was cut at the new office of returning citizens on 30 Dimock Street. This office will allow returning citizens access to all of the resources needed to resume their lives outside of prison. And for the first time, they'll be able to access them all under one roof. The offices will house returning citizens and Power Corps Boston. When someone comes out of incarceration, they're faced with a lot of um, situations where they have to meet their basic needs, right? And a lot of them go unanswered. A lot of times they're not addressed behind the wall. And so they come back and return to communities without IDs, without housing, without employment, without money. Um, and so having our office in the community is going to help address those gaps so that they're able to reintegrate back into society and be successful as they deserve to be. When you return home from incarceration without the proper resources, uh, individuals are most likely to reiterate, and so it's very important for uh, Office of Returning Citizens and other grassroots organizations like Justice for Housing to provide housing, job, vocational, you know, and other support services, which provides a better chance for them to succeed, to have a successful reentry. Well, it's really critical, especially at this stage, that we understand that everyone deserves a real opportunity to be reintegrated with their family, their community, with their society. We often call those second chances where the reality is this is just what we're called to do as not only citizens of the Commonwealth, but what we're called to do as humans, quite frankly. Um, it's really part of the ethos of who we are at the Demick Center, which we're so excited to be partnering with the city, Power Corps Boston, and the Office of Returning Citizens here on our campus. The MBTA will be suspending trains at Ashmont Station in mid-October. BNN's Lainey Broussard talked to some Dorchester residents who say they feel frustrated. The T says almost 40,000 riders come in and out of Ashmont Station every day. And while it may be busy now, starting October 14th through the 29th, it's going to be shut down. And some riders aren't too happy. It's going to be rowdy, a lot of arguments and fighting over it. I just think it's going to be, uh, it's a horrible idea to shut it down. The T says during the 16-day shutdown, they'll be repainting, power washing, and increasing accessibility at certain stops. But some passengers aren't convinced anything will change. It's always going to take a long time to get where I need to go. So It could be worse by not doing anything. 
These shutdowns will not only be impacting riders' daily commutes, but also their livelihoods. Yeah, it's going to be a mess. Yeah, I feel their pain. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of glad someone is talking about this. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that over 70% of Dorchester is made up of communities of color. And some people in these communities say they mainly rely on the red line to get around the city. That kind of seems like a little just like unfair, you know, especially for people of color. It's already hard enough to get around and waiting even longer for where you need to be to go or like where you need to go. It's just even worse for them. The MBTA told us that shuttle buses will run every five minutes between the hours of 6 to 9 a.m. and 3 to 6 p.m. on weekdays. In addition, riders can find a travel guide with other travel options on their website. Reporting for BNN, I'm Lainey Broussard. Pastor and human rights activist Torley Krua, a refugee of the Liberian Civil War, settled in Boston in 1990. He was instrumental in lobbying members of Congress and policymakers to increase the quota of refugees from Africa being allowed into the United States. He also worked tirelessly in New England and beyond to champion the rights of refugees and immigrants, as well as participatory democracy in Africa. Krua founded the Universal Human Rights International, and worked with thousands of immigrants from 38 different countries over the span of 20 years. Reverend Krua joined us in studio to discuss the recent election results in Liberia this week and the role he believes America should play in his country. This summer, we had the opportunity to do a story on your nephew, Jefferson Krua, who was running for the Liberian National Legislature. Yes. Uh, to represent Nimba County. The election was actually held earlier this week on Tuesday, October 10th. Um, can you share the, the results? Um, so the results, he came, I think he came second, but they haven't completed counting everything yet. But there were about 12 persons running for the district and he came second. So as of now, he is not, he didn't make the cut, the incumbent. I think, won the, the race. Okay. Well, this was his first time running. This so. was his first time running, yes. And he's the first in the family to venture into politics. What do you make of the current election process in Liberia? What types of changes would you like to see made? It's not just Liberia. It's across the entire continent of Africa. And at one, of the, one of the issues is it's not free. They have a very high bar of financial requirements. For example, you have to pay up to $1,500 uh, to register. You must have a minimum of, of 10,000 United States dollars in your bank account. That's not money you're gonna use for campaigning or anything else. Uh, you need a $100,000 insurance bond. I think it's just um, burdensome for people. This is a poor country. And if you have such a high financial requirement, just for registration for civic contests, civic leadership contests, you exclude a whole bunch of people and it becomes something that only benefits incumbents. So I think it's not free and fair. You've been very vigilant about the, the challenges that Liberians face, particularly Liberian refugees here in the United States. Can you talk about uh, some of the um, initiatives that you're working on in order to advance their rights here with uh, Universal Human Rights International? So this country is also not a level playing field. Liberia is a country that was created by two acts of the United States Congress, uh, the force of the United States uh, Navy 
and it was created uh, as a place that would serve the domestic and foreign policy interests of the United States of America with African Americans. And for today, to have refugees from Liberia living in this country for decades without permits to work is an indictment on this country. That's not the way it should be. People should treat each other fairly. And so I, I see a lot of problems with, like even the refugee process in, the, in this country, in the United States, um, the migrant process and all of these things that are happening. United States is one country. All refugees from around the world cannot come here. But the, those who come should be treated humanely. And that has not happened for Liberians. And when you look at Liberia, a country that was founded by the United States of America for citizens of the United States, people of color, codified racism is still dividing this country. And we see that playing out in how Liberians as human beings have been treated. And you spoke about the very special relationship that America has with Liberia and the fact that it essentially created the country for African-Americans to... The creation was illegal. You cannot create a country for citizens of the United States just because they are people of color. This country was founded on the principle, all men are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident, all men are created equal. But then a few years later, they passed a new law that said only white people will be citizens of the United States. And the creation of Liberia was to remove free blacks from the United States to a place where, according to the Constitution of 1824, that was approved in Washington, D.C., all persons born in Liberia are entitled to all privileges enjoyed by citizens of the United States. All persons moving from the United States to Liberia will still retain their citizenship. Their citizenship. It didn't happen. It was a trick. And a trick continues today, ravaging the lives of thousands of descendants of people who built this country through their sweat and tears building the United States. So this country has not lived up to the principles of all men are created equal. And all of the other stuff this country tries to do around the world, like going to fight in Ukraine, they undermine that by not being able to mitigate the harm of codified racism. It still exists and it's breaking this country apart. So what responsibility would you say the U.S. has to the people of Liberia now? United States of America needs to realize that the creation, this is their creation. It was done illegally, but it is the creation of, of the United States, number one. The first thing that needs to happen, you got to treat people as human beings. The United States is not currently treating Liberians as human beings at all. And so they have to, they have to treat Liberians as human beings, in the people from Liberia that are here should be given a chance to work in this country like anyone else. We had a bill passed that was signed by President Donald Trump. It's called the Liberian Refugee Fairness Act. It excludes a whole bunch of Liberians. Thousands of people are still living here that cannot work many years after a war that was plotted in Boston by Americans and Liberians, people of Liberian descent, started the war that drove these people here. So I think, I think that um, treat people fairly like human beings, give them a chance to be able to work, which is, has not been the case. 
under Obama, under Biden, under Trump, we still have some of these people still living here. And uh, finally, how can people uh, support the work that you're doing with the organization? One, we have a letter that's going to the Tom Lantos uh, Bipartisan Human Rights Commission in Congress. We support HR 40. I think there should not be any money spent overseas to try to mitigate harm of Russian colonization when you cannot pass HR 40 to study the impact of racism on Native Americans in Native American reservation, Indian reservations in this country. It hasn't happened. So that's one of the things that we need to do. We are sending the letter out, and we would like to have the Committee for Inclusion at the State House to work with us so that people who have been here for a long term that don't have permits to work to be given a chance. These are people that are not going to be lodged in hotels. We, we have not been fair at all in the Commonwealth of, of Massachusetts in treating people who've been here for years that don't have permits to work, that came here because of a civil war. People need to treat other human beings as human beings, period. Kiki Katese is a professional dreamer and a woman of first. She's a Rwandan actor, playwright, director, and cultural entrepreneur whose work has been revered for its creativity and success worldwide. She has hope for her work to heal and inspire the people of Rwanda. And her latest performance, The Book of Life, contributes to that goal. The show incorporates letters written by Rwandans to their loved ones who have passed away with music from Ngoma and Shia, Rwanda's first ever women's drumming group, to create an immersive Rwandan cultural experience like no other. She joined us in studio to discuss the Book of Life, which opens next week at Emerson Majestic Cutler Theater, and how the performance was shaped by Rwandan culture. So the Book of Life is a collection of letters written by the living to the dead. The dead, the dead being the victims of the 1994 genocide uh, of the Tutsi in Rwanda that happened almost 30 years ago uh, in Rwanda. So uh, we have been commemorating uh, since then. And uh, the Book of Life came as uh, a proposition to archive life and to invade that space of death with love, with life, and hope, and faith. Hmm. And can you talk to us a little bit about Ngoma and Shia and how their music and their collaboration inspired you? Yes, the Ngoma and Shia is uh, the group of the first ever female company of women drummers in Rwanda. And they also literally emerged from the genocide, because after the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi, uh, the population in Rwanda was made of 74% of women. They had also to literally rebuild the country uh, because there were the woman power, the hands that were available to rebuild the country. So uh, now the gender policy in Rwanda is very strong and we are empowering women. And as an artist, I did that, I applied that uh, women empowerment in my area of arts and uh, by breaking a taboo that forbid uh, women for centuries to even touch a drum. So when we invade that space, we found so much joy and jubilation. 
And that's what they're bringing also in the Book of Life. So that we make that journey from from dark to life. Mm. And can you talk about the process of creation that you found in rehearsals um, for this production? Yes, we started working with uh, Ross Manson from Volcano in Toronto in 2019, just before the pandemic. At that time, it was a one-woman show, and the music was not live, it was recorded. Um, and uh, for me, it, it was clear that we I wanted to have lots of many letters from the Book of Life written by the widows, the perpetrators and the orphans. But we finally only selected six of them. And um, with those letters, with my personal story and the motivation behind the act of writing to the dead or finding hope and life in uh, the genocide, if possible, with another myth from um, uh, a writer from... Uh, Jerry Kim, who was a Navajo storyteller, talk about this journey from of the animals who are in the dark and were looking for light. And we weave them also with uh, visuals that are really important for me because they are this impossible action of bringing back to life the victims of the genocide. And also songs that were created by a young musician in Rwanda which are also another conversation with the people who are gone, telling our love for them, the way we miss them, and we're looking forward to meeting them again. Mm. So all of that, that's our the, uh, the element that weave uh, the Book of Life and help us to, to find uh, light in this dark place that is the genocide. And the Book of Life, it predominantly features women, really using the voices of women. Uh, can you speak to the power of women and their connection to healing? Yes, I, I think there is something about also, uh, at the very beginning, the Book of Life was also another idea that for me it was clear that if we have to rebuild, to bring back life in Rwanda, to grow life, who know that than, more than a woman? She grows life, you know, she grows life in her, in her womb, she gives birth, she, she, she raises children. I think there is something there that we know how it works and the time it takes, the patience. And it was clear that it will be uh, that it will be a woman's story, because also even in Rwanda, um, when when men sometimes are, are really busy going to war and busy killing, we are the the, the, the almost literally the keepers of life. So that action for me was also ha- uh, was something that was symbolically has to be done by women. So it's a, a, a crew of women only on stage who were singing, dancing, drumming, and believing that after death, there is life and finding a way to grow and keep that life and grow faith and hope. And uh, for me, it was clear that it will be women the same way it will, the women have been rebuilding Rwanda after the, the genocide. The Book of Life, Hope and Harmony from Rwandan Voices runs Wednesday, October 18th through Sunday, October 22nd for six performances. For more information, artsemerson.org.
Thanks for tuning in, Boston. That's our broadcast for tonight. For BNN News, I'm Faith Amaphidon, and I'll see you next Friday.